is a lot of what you'll see when you look around. Marriage is increasing support for same-sex unions. You, you guys know all know this. I mean, we see this in the less folks are getting married now than they ever have before, and they're waiting longer to get married. The first time folks get married now, it's like age 28 for girls and 30 for men, which is later than it's ever been. Reevaluation. That's really the bottom line, isn't it? This 2010 Pew study, they surveyed, and they said 60% of the people say, look, if you are a family, if you think you're a family, then you are. So if you're two men living together and you decide to adopt a dog, that's a family. Or if you adopt a child, that's a family. Or if you're two ladies or three ladies, it's like kind of whatever is good for you is good for us. And that seems to be the most common definition of marriage. Kind of a downer. So in the context of that, we got a chapter to talk about today that says covenant marriages. Is it dream or reality? Can we make it? That's our, our subtitle for today. Can we make it? And that's a conclusion. And that's pretty much the lesson. Yes, you can make it. Okay, it is reality. Covenant marriage is reality and you can make it. And so, you know, you look at social scientists and they have all kind of research. Um, you know, you have a, another lady named Shante Feldman. She wrote a book that I love. I love her research. And she has a book out called The, um, the Great News About Marriage. And I'm just going to summarize what she says in it. She has six great points. The actual divorce rate's never been close to 50%, like you see in the statistics. And she goes through and enumerates why, and we're not going to defend that now, but I just want to say there's other perspectives out there. Any of you guys that have ever taken a statistics class in college or high school or anywhere, you know you got a group of numbers, you have a survey, you can look at that and kind of interpret a lot of different things out of there. And it, so it really depends on what kind of questions are being asked in these surveys, it depends on the nature of what they're trying to find out when they ask those questions as to what conclusions you can draw. So she's gone back to the same data that a lot of this research is done on saying that you got 50% divorce rate. And she says, no, it's never been close to that. In fact, she argues it's almost about half of that. Most marriages report they're happy. 70 to over 90% report they're happy in marriage. That they would get married again. Over 90% of the people say that. They would marry their, their spouse again. The rate of divorce in the church, she argues, is much lower 75% lower than it is if you're not in church. I'm sorry, 27%. My numbers. So it's, it's less, and that's because you're engaged with other Christians that are giving you encouragement and uplifting uh, your marriage and supporting you. Remarriages are not doomed. You see sometimes high as 75 to 80% for second and third marriages success rate. She says that's not true. That you can have a great, happy, vibrant marriage and most people do that get remarried. And that most marriage problems are not caused by big issues. They're small things. They're little things. It's how, how do you communicate to your spouse? How do you resolve conflict? And that it's not the big, huge, major things that are killing marriages these days. It's the little things that add up that we don't learn how to resolve in things. So there is this little tale of three faces. If you've ever had a marriage class with me, you might have seen this before. And, but I want to talk about it. This comes out of research that's done at University of Denver. They have a whole program based on marriage enrichment out there. And they studied couples after couples after couples after couples. And this is what they've come up with. And you kind of got to, I'm going to ask you sort of like, which category do you want to be in? 
with these folks. So what they're saying is, if if you look at stability or uh, satisfaction in marriage and stability, over time, this is what they found in their research. There's a whole bunch of couples out there that just aren't really that happy. Okay. And they decide to throw in the towel. They're not stable. They get divorced. So they're unhappy and they're not married. I mean, so I'm arguing that's our sad face, couples. They say in their research that's 40 to 50 percent, roughly, of couples. And again, you can argue about this, but that's not the point of exactly what the number is. But there's a large group of folks, they're not happy, and they decide, we just can't do it, and they get divorced. So you got another group of folks over here. They're not that happy, but they're still married. So that's why I give them this sort of like squiggly face. They might be going up and down, and they might have good days and bad days. But so they're not divorced, but they could be happier. They could be more thriving in their marriage, and they say that's about 20 to 30% of folks. And then you can anticipate there's a third group, and they get, they're the ones that get the big smiley face. They're happy, and they're actually married. You know, it's kind of funny. I mean, they're married, and they're actually happy. It depends on how, you know, some people think you can't be happy. But they are. That's another 20 to 30% according to this research. So what you find is like, when you look at all of these couples, you figure out what's the difference, what's going on. In the 70s, this rise of no-fault divorce. It's like you're looking, what's going on in these pictures? You have a, a you we're married, we got a man and we're married, you're not that happy, you're looking at your spouse and you're thinking, man, there's something wrong with you. So I'm going to get, a, I'm checking out, I'm getting a new spouse to make it better. No fart divorce goes up in the 70s, the divorce rate is rising and rising and it's like irreconcilable differences. We're not happy, we got problems. So when the researchers look at this and they say, well, what's the difference between these guys here, you know, these half of folks and those? And really what's more, what's the difference between these guys and right down here where we have a bunch of happy married couples? What you find out is these, these guys here, they also have irreconcilable differences. They also have two different personalities going on in their marriages. They also fight about money. They also have problems with affection in their marriage. They have trouble disciplining their kids, you know. So the guy works sometimes too hard, and wife wants him to come home. They have the same problems these guys have, but the difference is, like, they have those problems here. They have to resolve these problems and manage through them without making more new problems. So, you know, the wife doesn't throw things at the husband, and the husband doesn't look at her and call her names and make more damage to the relationship when these kind of things come up. And that's what the great news about marriage is. That's why you can have a happy face marriage because 
this stuff is a lot of the little stuff, and it might be big stuff, but when you learn how to resolve it, when you do a class like this and we talk about how do we do better communication in marriage, how do we resolve conflict, then you can have this kind of happy-faced marriage and get to it. So let's see. So let's talk about what is marriage then. Let's have something to shoot for. You know, I've met with folks that say, I don't, I don't really know what marriage looks like. I don't know what I'm trying to do here. So this is just a, a definition of what it covers. And I just kind of want to highlight and emphasize for our lesson this morning this aspect of a declaration of benefits. It's to be given to somebody from one person to another. Somebody's initiating something that they're given to the other person. And Mike did a great job of laying those characteristics out last week. So where does this idea come from? I wanted you to talk about, you think about Genesis. I'm going to go back to creation for a second. We have creation, and things are good. He creates humanity, and things are very good. God makes this beautiful creation. He puts man and woman in a garden. He puts them together, and he says it's very good. And the chapter 2 in Genesis ends, and there, you know, that's when they talk about man's going to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two are going to become one. They're talking about a covenant relationship there. And they're naked, and they're not ashamed. They're fully open to one another. And so you have this picture of beauty, of perfection in the world. Shalom, what they call it. So, but then what happens is you turn the page and you get Genesis 3. And right there in verse 1, now the serpent, he's more crafty. And then you know like the rest of the story, sin, sin enters the world. You can even say it with me. It's like where sin is, is death. Where sin, there's death. The consequences of our sin are death. And so humanity had a problem. Man had a problem. And so how did God fix that? God's solution was he's a covenant God. Sin, you go from chapter 3 to chapter 4, you have Cain and Abel, and what happens? Death. Chapter 5 is a whole listing of, um, oh, my gosh, the word slipped my tongue. It's a genealogy. He lived and then he died. He lived and then he died. He lived and then he died. He lived and then he died, and you get down to Noah, and Noah goes, and what happens? They die. And then you get another genealogy in chapter 9. In chapter 10, you get a little bit more, and you get them building the, uh, and in chapter 11, they're building the Tower of Babel. And then the, God disperses the people, and there's another genealogy that there's more death. And then all of a sudden, you, you get to Genesis 12, 12, 1, and you have the Abrahamic covenant saying, I'm going to bless these people, and I'm going to make you a nation. And he's taking the proactive action to love his people unconditionally forever, despite what the Israelites are going to do, despite what Abraham does. God's committed to him, and he makes a covenant with him. His answer to sin, his solution to our problem is covenant He's a covenant God. He loves us even when we were unlovable, even before Christ died for us when we were still yet sinners. And so what I want to, you could kind of see the parallel here. Our problem was sin, and God fixed that by being a covenant God and devoted to us. And I just want to suggest to you that in marriage, 
We have the same problem. We still have sin. We have selfishness going on. And what is the solution? God's design, and we see it in Genesis 2 and then throughout the Bible, is covenant marriage. It's one person being committed to another person, even though they're faulty, even though there's problems. They're committed to it. And you see the characteristics of that and what Mike laid out before. So if we just take a quick look at this in Scripture. Oops, I accidentally blanked it out. I just want to put this down real quick. That's the, no, that's the Abrahamic covenant. It's Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And what's the interesting thing in there is that you see right up front, now the Lord said to Abram. It wasn't a, a bargain. It's God committing to Abram and by him to us. And that's carried out through the new covenant with Jesus and his undying love for us. And what's interesting is you follow that, and God repeats that and reiterates that to Abram. Genesis 12, Genesis 13, 15, 17, he does it to Isaac. In Genesis 21 and Genesis 26, down through the generations, to Jacob in Genesis 28 two times. And it's carried on. God revisits that and reminds his people, I'm committed to you. He takes proactive action. I'd suggest in marriage, if you look at traditional vows, I did a wedding about two, three weeks ago now. This is, we had, they used the traditional marriage vows. These are basically it. You, you guys know what it is. But if you think about what it, the words are there, because if you think about it, it's you're committing to the other person. I love you. I take you to be my lawful way to wife, to have and to hold, and richer for poorer. You know the language. It's a statement, a declaration of your love to the other person, and it's unconditional. That's what the covenant marriage is. Sometimes we think of it like this. Sometimes we live it out like this because it's hard sometimes. There are, we are two different people, and there are disagreements. But we don't, this is not when you stand before the wedding vow or the altar. This is not what you're saying. It's not, I love you, you know, kind of like as long as you love me back. That's not what it is. You're my lawful, lawful wed to wife as long as you meet my needs. And you can put in there whatever your things that you disagree with about your spouse. Well, I think, you know, you see the point. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to look at this, and I don't want to minimize marriage by putting a quote like that up there because I know we don't, we don't think of it that way, but sometimes when we live it out, it feels like that, and sometimes we're tempted to think about it like that. So, so Gary Chapman was struggling with this in his book, Covenant Marriage, the one that we're following. He's struggling with this. He was, I really like the way he opens up this, this chapter and this idea because he's addressing covenant marriage. And then he goes back and he says, you know, I was really struggling in my marriage. He was in seminary, and he was thinking, and he was miserable with his wife. His needs were not being met. He wasn't meeting his wife's needs. He was mad at himself for getting married. He was mad at God. How could you? I've been praying for my wife my whole life. This is supposed to be my happiest day of my life, and now I'm miserable. They were early on in their marriage. He's in seminary, and he's blaming God for letting him marry this woman who is not a good fit. You know, he's going through this thinking, I'm just going to call it in quits. But I want to be a... In the ministry, how can I go do that? And so he started struggling with that, and he started reading through the Gospels. This is our five love languages guy. And he's on the brink of leaving his wife while he's in seminary. 
So he starts reading through the Gospels and he says, you know, God kind of shows him, maybe you need to try to follow and be a little bit more like Christ in your marriage. Maybe you need to be a little more of a servant in your marriage. Maybe you need to learn how to love your wife more unconditionally than you're doing now. So God walked him through several scriptures, and I'm just going to highlight a few of them for you. Jesus is talking to his disciple in Matthew 20, 28. And you guys know the verse. But he did not come to be served, but to serve. Right before the Last Supper in John 13, he's washing his disciples' feet. He's the one that he deserves to be served. He deserves the honor. But he's down on his hands and he's washing his disciples' feet because he's trying to set an example for us on how we're supposed to be interacting with others in our lives. He's trying to set an example for us on how we're to love and, and care for one another as brothers in Christ and Furthermore, in our marriages, the most intimate relationship here on earth. And in, in Ephesians, it talks about this. Of course, I'm just going to open it up real quick. But in Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, it's, it gives a great explanation of this. And it's funny, it starts out with, in, in verse 22, I'm going to start, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We love that one for the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, like Christ is head of the church, his body, for which, is the save, for which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands and everything. And we love that. Yeah, baby. So that's three verses that we get. And then he turns to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. It's Christ. Love the church. And you, But you know it keeps going. And gave himself up for her. And it keeps going. And why did he do that? To make her holy. The purpose is to serve your wife like Christ served the church. And gave himself for the church to make us holy before the Lord. That's our job is to serve and love our wives so they can be all that God's created them to be. So they can be holy. So they can do, so they can reach the potential that God's designed them for. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish or holy, holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. For he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body. But he feeds it and he cares for it, just as Christ does the church. We are members of his body. That's six verses. So God gives us six verses to live this out, to learn how to love. And the thing is, that whole section is prefaced in verse 21 where it says, submit to one another in reverence to Christ. Because of your love for Christ, because, of, because we serve our wives because Christ gave us the example to serve. That's the reason why. And we do it through the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, it, it talks about doing this not because we're drunk on wine, not because of um, 
we're out of our minds. But we do it because we're filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3 makes the same argument. We live this life and we serve our wives, not because they deserve it, not because they're so wonderful. It's because it's our duty. It's our job. And when we, as men, we know what our job is and we take it serious. I don't care if you're, there's so many military and government here, you know, but you don't have to be that. Anybody that's working, I mean, you take that serious and you want to do it well. You study, you work hard, you don't wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to go to work and kind of mess up and hope people make, think that I'm a, a loser at my job. No, we take pride in that. And this is, our marriage is, it's our number one job. That's why Dallas wants us to be talking about this. It's so important. And it's such a witness to other people. So how can we get a little practical? Here's three, here's three suggestions, three ideas for questions you can ask your wife. And what's amazing is if your wife really believes that you love her and you want to serve her, she's going to be more than happy to give you these kind of answers. I asked my wife, would you, would you answer these if I asked you? And she started just making the list. You know? So it's like, okay, <laughs> thanks. So that's because we want to serve our spouses. So can you have a happy face? This is our last slide. Can you have a happy face marriage? Yeah. You got to work at it. You got to, like, fall into this category, learn, study, seek to understand your wife, and serve her. Now, if you, ha- if you have kids, think about them for a minute. You know, and if you don't have kids, think about how you wanted to be treated when you were a kid. Because not everybody has a perfect family. I know that. But you have kids. You love those kids. You're committed to those kids. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how often they mess their rooms up and don't clean it, how bad their grades get, how much they talk back to you. How many fights they get in at school, How it doesn't matter. You're going to love them no matter what. It doesn't stop. And that's how it is with our wives. That's God's design for how we're to love our wives. Christ died for us when we were still yet sinners. He didn't wait for we were being so lovely until he died. You know, I pray for my marriage. I pray for my wife every day. But at the end of the day, it's my responsibility to do my part to uphold the covenant in our marriage. No matter what my wife does. And I pray God holds her close and keeps her tied to him so that she can do the same thing. But ultimately, it's not up to me how she's going to live up to her covenant. It's up to my responsibility to do my part. And we can only do that, and we can only do it well when we depend on Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So my question to you is, how are you going to do that? How are you going to live that out? 
some questions for you to think about this morning and talk about over your tables because it's not always easy. But through Christ and the Holy Spirit, we can do it. And that's what we get to talk about the rest of this semester is to try to find out little ways that we can improve and do better. So I'll close in prayer, and we'll get to our table time. Lord, thanks for this time this morning. Thanks for loving us, and we pray that you help us be the first and the best servant in our marriages and to the others around us. In Jesus' name, amen.